for the benefit of our neighbor and for your honor. We pray that you would produce all of this through the preaching of your word. So come and do it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are starting a new sermon series today. I talked about, or McKenzie referenced how I've said many times this year already that we fault started and just can't seem to advance the ball down the field. I feel that way about this sermon series in Jude. Tried to start this two, week, two different Sundays, and now we're finally going to do it, and we're thankful uh, to be together. Jude, many may know, is a very short letter toward the end of your Bible. If you go to the book of Revelation, that pretty famous book, the controversial book, and you bank left, Jude is immediately there. And it is a brief epistle that we are going to spend five weeks, Lord willing, making our way through. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn there to Jude. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about that. We will put the words to the sermon text on the screen behind me, and you'll be able to refer along there. As you're flipping and finding the book of Jude, maybe it's been a minute since you've read it, just a few comments on it generally. For many, it's not the first New Testament epistle that comes to your mind. But there is a lot in this little letter. It's 25 verses long. But in those 25 verses, we're going to consider God's saving work in us. We're going to consider his love for us and Christ's faithfulness to keep us. We're going to consider that there is the faith, definite article. There is one faith that has once and for all time been given to the saints by the apostles. We're going to think about that faith. Jude also writes of the danger of bad doctrine, the fallout of immoral behavior, and the deceitfulness of sin. So all of that packed into 25 verses that we're going to consider over five weeks, and we pray for the Lord's help as we do so. So before we go any further, I'm going to read our sermon text today, which might be the briefest sermon text in the history of Covenant Baptist Church. It's possible. Typically, I'm preaching larger sections of Scripture. Two verses today, Jude 1 and 2. Nonetheless, this is the Word of God, and listen as I read it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Amen. We thank God for his word. I have a three-part message planned for us today, and so we will make our way right now to part one, which the header on part one is just introduction. That's probably not surprising to anyone. First sermon in the series, we're going to introduce the letter of Jude. The very beginning of verse 1, the first words of the epistle, the author is going to introduce himself. This is a very typical thing to do. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Literally, this man's name is Judas. It's a very common Jewish name, and Jude is an appropriate English rendering of it. He identifies himself as the brother of James. This was James the Apostle, who was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church, an instrumental man in the early decades of the church being founded. This man, Jude, the writer of this epistle, is also, along with James and others, the half-brother of Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 13 and in Mark chapter 6, we read these words, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That Judas is this man. As far as the date of this epistle and the audience to whom it is written, it was written in the mid-first century A.D. to a Palestinian church comprised of Jewish and Gentile believers. 
So not an uncommon situation for the writers of these epistles to be writing into a context that is somewhat new, where for the first time in redemptive history, there is a significant number of Gentiles who are a part of God's people. It is a book, it is a short letter, as I referred to earlier, that has often been treated, as one commentator put it, with benign neglect, Jude is. You rarely hear a sermon from Jude. You rarely hear a sermon series through Jude, with the exception, you know, you might get a one-off sermon on verse 3, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, or a one-off sermon on the doxology, verses 24 and 5, that are soaring in what they say. Even in academic settings, though, Jude often just kind of receives a nod at the close of a teaching section on the general epistles. You know, it's the last day of class in your New Testament course, and we've made our way through all the other New Testament material, and here's Jude right before Revelation, and we're going to tip the cap and acknowledge that it's here. But it seems that the letter was viewed with more significance in the first century of the church. Because Jude, most biblical scholars agree, a large portion of Jude's material was incorporated into the letter of 2 Peter. And so Jude is unique in that regard in being the only New Testament epistle to be extensively incorporated into another one, written by a different author. Before we move on to part two of today's message, let's briefly consider what Jude's major concerns were as he wrote this letter. What are the things, the themes, and the concerns that characterize this short epistle? Several, in no particular order. Jude is clearly concerned with immorality, rebellion, and divisiveness in the church. That will become clear as we make our way through this letter. He is concerned with what I would call legitimate antinomianism. Antinomian, anti-nomos, against the law. And by legitimate antinomianism, we mean two things. One, a denial of God's moral law as the guide for living. Two, the promotion of immorality as an expression of Christian freedom. He is concerned with those things. In particular, the promotion of sexual immorality is in view. Another concern is that as bad as all of that is in terms of what's going on, what makes it worse is that these individuals who were promoting and engaging in such activity were claiming to be divinely inspired, dreams and visions and the like. These people were producing a lot of division in the church. And as we've thought about before, particularly recently from the letter to the Ephesians, the unity of the body of Christ is of great concern to the Lord. These people that were producing division were grumblers and malcontents, Jude says, following their own sinful desires and leading many astray. They had a rebellious posture against Christ, against his angels, and against the authority of the apostolic church. So in all of these things, Jude is going to plead with his audience to adhere to the faith once for all delivered to the saints the faith that the apostles had received and then given to them. In other words, the exhortation of Jude is, brothers and sisters, adhere to the apostolic tradition, which is nothing other than what we seek to do today, nearly 2,000 years later. All that by way of part one, the introduction, we now move on to part two of today's message, the identity of the audience, the identity of the audience of this epistle. 
Now, by, by identity, I don't mean who are these people. I've already identified them as Jewish and Gentile believers, a Palestinian church, etc. What I mean is who are these people in the mind of the man writing this letter, inspired of the Holy Spirit. Put your eyes back on verse 1, the second half of it. Jude's going to address those to whom he understands himself to be writing. How does he describe them? He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for or by, either is an appropriate translation, Jesus Christ. To those who are called, loved, and kept. Now, before we unpack the words in that sentence, and there is a lot to consider in those words. Jude here is, even in this brief letter, yet another example of what we refer to as the apostolic pattern and how he writes to a church. By that apostolic pattern, we mean this. The apostles in writing to churches always begin by affirming their audience, by telling them and pointing them to their identity in the Lord Jesus, by pointing them even to their status as justified sinners in Christ, by pointing them to the faithfulness and the promises of God in Christ that are unshakable. That's how the apostles begin. And then in light of that, and under that banner, they move on to matters of how the saints are to live together in the church. That pattern matters. And this letter, though it is short, still has that structure. So we're dealing today with the greeting that Jude gives to his readers, to his audience. And this greeting is filled with words about who they are in God and in Christ. So we're going to consider called, loved, and kept one at a time, all under part two, the identity of the audience. We'll begin with this word called. The saints are those who are called. Now, by called, Jude does not mean just the general call of the gospel that goes to all people. By called, Jude means what theologians refer to as the effectual call of God. The call of God that produces an effect, that accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish in the life of a human being. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with how you became a Christian in the first place. It's a legitimate thing to think about. There's a lot of things people believe in this world today. It's always been true. A lot of ways people live. We are in the minority sense of how we seek to live life. Have you ever wrestled with? Have you ever thought about, why in the world did I believe this in the first place? I know I did. As a young man, I wrestled with that question. Why would I come to trust Christ in the first place? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? And pointedly, in a period of my life, I was in a church where we were going through the book of Ephesians, and we were learning theology together on Wednesday night. And I was taught for the first time in my life some church history. And there was a debate in the 5th century between two men, one named Augustine and one named Pelagius. Augustine of Hippo, Bishop of Alexandria, and Pelagius, a British monk. Pelagius is known in the history of the church for teaching that when Adam and Eve fell, 
when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and broke the covenant, that nothing happened to our nature. That we simply fell from innocence, but that we are still born morally neutral, able to make of ourselves what we will, making ourselves good or making ourselves evil. And the only reason that we all sin is because we have poor examples to follow. This was the teaching of Pelagius. I'd never heard of him in my life, but I thought, that is not true. That is not true of what I have experienced, even in the short time I'd been on. Then I learned of what Augustine taught. That he said, no, the Bible teaches that when we, when we fell in Adam, when Adam sinned and we sinned in him, something fundamentally changed in our nature. It was tragic. And we all now are born corrupt. We inherit Adam's guilt and we inherit his corrupt nature. And so we have a nature that is bent toward wickedness and we are born into a realm of spiritual death. I thought, that's right. That's right. You know it's right. Something happened to us when Adam sinned. We have inherited the corrupt nature that he then had we have inherited his guilt and we are dead spiritually. What does that mean for how we would ever come to believe God's word, how we would ever come to believe God's promises, how we would ever come to heed his warnings, how would we ever come to trust his son? Well, Augustine also said, according to the book, we agree with him, that if a sinner is going to be brought to life, God has to do that resurrecting work. If a sinner can only do what it's in his nature to do, if he's going to do anything other than that, God has to do it. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. May the Lord encourage your heart, saints, as you think about how you came to trust Christ in the first place. This was no mere decision that you made like any other choice that you make in your life. This was something that God did for you that has roots in eternity past. And you were dead, Paul says, beginning in Ephesians 2.1, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We'll stop there for just a second. We were not sick in need of healing. We were not broken in need of fixing. We were not dirty in need of cleaning up. We were dead in need of resurrection. That was our condition. He goes on. Following the course of this world. What a great illustration. We live in the mountains. It's beautiful around here. A lot of streams and creeks that flow. Have you ever seen leaves and pieces of debris just kind of being carried along on top of the water? They just go wherever the stream goes. So too were we. Men are like sheep. We wander around, we follow the herd, and don't have a clue what we're doing. We just do what everybody else does, following the course of the world. It's what we were. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's that? It's Satan, the ancient serpent who is the devil, the great accuser of the brethren, the enemy of God's people, the one who is referred to as the God of this world. with regard to the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
we like to think of ourselves as human beings as being intellectuals. We're creatures of reason and rationality, and we live according to that. I think we need to be honest. In our fallen condition, we are slaves to our cravings, slaves to our desires, and we live accordingly. We think far too highly of ourselves. We were driven and ruled at one time by the passions of our flesh, simply carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, meaning this is not something we become, this is not something that we make ourselves, this is something that we are. Then verse 4, wonderful words that we all love and hold dear for good reason, but God. In those two words, we've moved from sin to salvation, but God. We have moved from man and his hopelessness to God and his almighty power. What did he do? Being rich in mercy, because who he is, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, we were still dead. We hadn't done anything. He made us alive together with Christ. There it is. We've been united to the Lord Jesus by faith. We were born again by the power of the Spirit of God, given faith, united to Christ, made alive in him and with him. By grace you have been saved and raised us up, God did. Raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. When Jude says that he's writing to the saints, he's writing to those who are called, he is talking about that but God part. People that have been made alive by the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. People who have been united to the Lord Jesus in faith. Now in our experience, the way this often goes, we are not aware of what the Lord is doing in us. We might have an inkling. We might know like one or two of the like 10,000 things that God is up to. We might sense some of that. But what happens for us is that God shows up in our lives by his word, by his means, his spirit inhabits those and works directly on our hearts. And scales get knocked off our eyes. We see for the first time. We're free for the first time to actually be rational, to see ourselves for who we are, to see God's law for what it is, to see God for who he is in his holiness and righteousness, to understand to some degree what Christ has accomplished for sinners. And we don't know everything, but we know we need Christ. Like the blind man in John 9, who said, One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. God did that. God did that. He gave us life when we were dead. It's like Lazarus in the tomb, John chapter 11. Tons that could be said about that account that we don't have time for today. But suffice it to say for now that the one who gave the command, Lazarus, come out, is the one who gave him the life with which to do so. Called 
of God. Jude, the writer of this letter, he knew something of this call himself. In a very firsthand and obvious way, he did. Remember, he was a part of the earthly family of Jesus. And we know from the gospel accounts, particularly John chapter 7, we know that he, along with his brothers, did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. There was animosity that existed there. They didn't understand Jesus. They didn't believe. But that would change. How? This man who didn't believe his half-brother would come to a place where he would happily refer to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In other words, at some point in Jude's own life, God did a thing, showed up, and united him in faith to Christ. Consider these words of our own confession of faith regarding the effectual call of God. Just listen. In God's appointed time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely, since they are made willing by his grace. Amen. That last part is important too. People here talk about the effectual call of God and sometimes misunderstand it. It's like, oh, so what are you saying, brother? People are just drug kicking and screaming to Jesus whether they want to come or not? No, that's absurd. We come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. In that moment, because of the grace of God upon our lives, as I said earlier, we don't know a lot, but we know that we need Christ and there is nothing that we want more than him in that moment. We do what we want to do. We make decisions to follow Christ that are meaningful. The question is not, do we decide to follow Jesus? Yes, we do. The question is, why do we choose what we chose? And long before we made a decision for Christ, God made a decision for us. Praise be to his name. Continuing on in our confession, this effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in those calls. Not because of what you were, it's not even because of what you might be. It's because of grace. Neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. We receive salvation from beginning to end. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead. Amen. Just listen to these words from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Do not, don't worry about turning. Just listen. What does it mean to be called? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By every, he means every. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us not because we were something, but that we might be something. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Jude says, we have been called by God. And so we have. Called. Loved by God the Father. Let's consider that together now. Beloved in God the Father, says Jude in verse 1. Saints, we are loved by God deeply, unswervingly, unrelentingly, steadfastly. Those descriptors mean something. We, frankly, cannot hear this enough of the love of God for us. We struggle, all of us do. It might manifest itself differently, but we all have this difficulty. We struggle to trust that God loves us this way, that he loves us the way that he loves us. That's because there remains in all of us a remnant of unbelief. That's because our perspective is limited. And from our perspective, our experiences and our circumstances and our consciences often preach a very different word than God loves you. We also tend to think that God is like us, even though he tells us he's not. He says, you think that I'm altogether like you? But we do. We think that he is. We think that his love, like ours, often ebbs and flows. We think that his love for us, like we tend to be with each other, is predicated upon how we're doing. Or maybe we envision God as dissatisfied and frustrated and angry, eager to punish us. Yes, he loves us, but he's bound to. His love and grace and mercy have kind of backed him into the corner. He's kind of got to love me. But deep down, he's upset. He's just waiting for the opportunity to drop the hammer when we fall out of line. The enemy, Satan, the accuser, doubles down on all of this. He accuses us. He uses our own consciences sometimes against us. He's got plenty of material to work with. So we're sinners. Satan says things to us like this. How could God really love you? Look at your life. Look at your circumstances, your hardships, your pain. If he loves you, that's some kind of love, all right. Or he says something like this. How could God really love you? You are a wretch. You realize this, right? The enemy's word to people outside of Christ is, you don't need mercy. You're fine. His word to people in Christ is, there's no mercy for you, not for you. He goes on, you've blown it again. Here you are sinning again. God is surely done with you now. Or he says this, you know what? God is holy. He's righteous. He hates sin. Don't think the enemy doesn't do this, saints. He twists the word of God. That's what he does. He's holy and he's righteous. He hates sin and he hates sinners. And you have clearly not done well enough. He's put up with you for a while, but not anymore. So what we're about to consider in thinking about how we know that God loves us, we've thought about before. We're just going to keep turning that diamond slowly together for the rest of our lives so that we might see more and more how he loves us. You might be like, bro, do we need to consider the love of God again? Yes, we do. There are certain things that we will never get completely beyond this side of the resurrection. And so there are things that we need to hear over and over 
again and then over and over and over again. And this is one of those. So question, million dollar variety question. How do we know that God loves us? Don't take my word for it. Take his. Just listen. For God so loved the world, in this way loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do we know God loves us? What is the evidence? Well, it isn't our love to God. It isn't our lives. It isn't our circumstances. It isn't our anything. It is Christ above all. His life for our lives. His death as our death. And the beauty of this, saints, is that God does not do any of this reluctantly. He does not love reluctantly, but joyfully. He delights to shower his love upon his children. This has always been his plan to love us, and to save us this way. Christ himself says it, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He doubles down, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Praise Christ for that. Praise the Father. Luke chapter 15, one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. Three parables are contained in that chapter. They're often ripped apart, which is to our detriment. They should be read together, understood together. Because there's a common theme in all three of them. The first one is about the lost sheep. The second one is about a lost coin. The third one's about a lost son. You guys know these stories, but consider this for a minute. Consider the pattern and consider the love of your heavenly father for you. In the first one, there's a sh one sheep has left the 99, right? And has wandered away. It's in danger. The shepherd leaves the 99 to pursue the one, finds it, rejoices, comes home. And he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Sheep was lost. The shepherd finds the sheep. He is thrilled. He comes home and calls his loved ones and says, let's celebrate about this lost one that was found. 
Just so, says Christ, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And of course, that righteous person who needs no repentance is not a real person. That is rhetoric. Parable of the lost coin. You know this one. It's a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one. She turns the house upside down, inside out to find it. And when she finds it, she rejoices. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, says Christ, over one sinner who repents. Then the prodigal son. You guys know this story. Consider the love of God for us. The younger son brashly, inappropriately demands his inheritance prematurely. He takes it. He goes off into a foreign land. He squanders it. His life is destitute. He's ruined. He's mired in sin. One day he wakes up and he's like, you know what? Even slaves in my father's house, they are in a better position than I am. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to dad. I'm going to talk to him. And I'm going to say, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me work for you. Let me be a servant in your house. So he goes. And of course, we know the father sees him from a long way off and runs to him. This dignified Jewish head of a household runs to him. The son begins to offer his pitch. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Can't even get to the second part about, hey, let me work for you. When the father interrupts him and says, bring the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. There is joy in heaven. It brings the God of the universe joy to save you and me. That is astonishing love. What kind of God is he? That his heart would be moved with compassion and love and joy to save a wretch like me or you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. All on account of Christ, saints, of whom we sing. He kept his Father's every word. The law he followed perfectly. So all God's pleasure he secured. All this and more he earned for me. And because his righteous life is mine and all his merits now I own, I am a child of God on high, adopted, loved, and known. Called, loved, kept. We're going to consider kept for or kept by Jesus Christ. Listen to these words again. Just listen. Listen to the words of certainty from the Apostle Paul, about your and my salvation. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. A lot of certainty in those verses, beloved. Jesus himself, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul, and I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of these things are true for us saints because we have been united to Christ. And union with Christ is our salvation. Period. To be united to Christ is to be finally saved. To be united to Christ guarantees that we will be kept by him. He is our high priest. Our names are graven on his hands and our names are written in his book. He always lives to make intercession for us and to advocate for us when we sin. In him, we died to the law. And in baptism, we are baptized into his death. Listen to these words. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united to him in a resurrection like his. That's why Paul can write, I'm going to read it in a second, Romans 8.30, he can write all of these things in a tense that means they're done. Listen to this. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. How can he say it with that certainty? Glorification hasn't happened yet. But how can he say it as though it's over? Huge truth. He can say it because Christ, our covenant head, has already been glorified. And so what is true of the head is also true of us, his body. That's some good news to go to sleep with tonight. Because we've been united to the Lord Jesus, we will be raised in him. This is the language of the apostles. Because we've been united to the Lord Jesus, we will be like him. We will see him as he is, and we will be perfectly conformed to his image. And in the meantime, between now and then, he is our protector and our guardian. We no doubt would fall prey to Satan a million times over were we not under the protection of Christ our Savior. When the enemy accuses us, when he fires darts at us, when our own hearts condemn us, Christ will protect us. He will guard us. He will, as Richard Sibbs would say, nourish even the faint flicker of faith that we have. He will fan that. He will keep us until he has brought judgment to victory. Amen, somebody. Saints, we have been called by God. We are loved in God the Father. 
we're kept, preserved by Jesus Christ so that we might not fall away from salvation. Thus concludes part two. And now moving on to part three. And I'm attempting to budget my time well in a sermon on two verses. So here we go. We're doing okay. Part three, blessing on the audience. Part three, blessing on the audience. Look at verse two, Jude, Jude two. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now that's a gospel blessing right there. Mercy, peace, love. We need mercy for our sins because we're sinners. We need peace for our troubled hearts for the same reason we're sinners. We need love to be poured out in us for the same reason we're sinners and only God can pour love into our hearts. We need him to do that. <clears throat> in the gospel, we receive mercy, peace, and love from God in abundance. And oh, how we need the gospel to be heralded to us and over us. The gospel tells us of the sufficiency of Christ to completely and finally save sinners, even the most wretched ones such as we are. You see, the reason we need the gospel all the time is because there's a tendency in all of us to go back to God's law and try to do things with it that we shouldn't. We try to turn it into a covenant of works of some kind where I need to keep it in whole or in part for eternal life and righteousness. It is normal for human beings to do this. In part, the reason that we do this is because God did make a covenant of works with Adam in the garden where he could have earned eternal life. He could have earned eternal life and blessedness through his obedience. But it doesn't work like that after the fall. The end of Genesis 3 with all the imagery of the tree of life and Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden away from the tree of life. The way back to the tree of life is guarded by an angel with flaming swords, right? What's all that about? The opportunity to earn eternal life is over. It will come by another way now. It will come by grace through the promise of a redeemer. In addition to the fact that we try to earn our way to God, there's always a tendency for us to think that God is the great taskmaster of heaven. Here's how that reasoning goes. We need to work for our wages, right? And the more work we do, the more wages we get. The better work we do, the better wages we get. As Martin Luther and others have said, it is the general opinion of human beings throughout the world that righteousness is gotten through works of the law. Do not think that that's not true of you. It is. It's true of me. Also, Luther, describing his own ministry, listen to these words. I have now preached the gospel for nearly 20 years and have been working daily in the gospel, reading and writing for that same span. One would think I might be rid of this wicked perspective. Yet, there are times this old filth cleaves to my heart so that I would have my relationship with God be one where I bring him something because of which he should give me his grace. But you see, saints, the good news, the good news is that God justifies not those who deserve it, not those who are sincere. God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the wicked. It is the Pharisee, not the tax collector. Excuse me, it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee. It's not 
the wedding guest who comes into the wedding wearing the garments of his own righteousness. It's the one who had to be given a garment at the door to get in. That's what God does. It is not that God justifies those who have done their best, but they've just fallen short as though they might be accepted for their effort or sincerity. No. Those who are unrighteous, those who are unjust, are declared just by God on account of Jesus Christ. And those unrighteous ones receive this righteousness by faith, not what they do. As Edward Fisher wrote almost 400 years ago, here, when it comes to the gospel, here, you are to work nothing. Here, you are to do nothing. Here, you are to render nothing unto God, but only to receive the treasure, which is Jesus Christ, and apprehend him in your heart by faith, although you be never so great a sinner. And so shall you obtain forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and eternal happiness, not as an agent, but as a patient, not by doing, but by receiving. This then is perfect righteousness, to hear nothing, to know nothing, to do nothing of the law of works, but only to know and believe that Jesus Christ is now gone to the Father and sitteth at his right hand, not as a judge, but is made unto you of God wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And not only has God shown us this once and for all mercy, not only has he given us this once and for all peace, he gives us mercy and peace in an ongoing way because we need that too. We pray for it all the time. We're taught to. Father, give us mercy for our sins. Father, take away guilt and shame and fear and give us peace. Now, when we're doing that, we're not needing to be justified again. We're not doing that to keep ourselves saved. It's not, it's not what we mean. But that all, that's all been handled. Like once and for all, we're secure. But we are acknowledging that we have sinned against our Father and are in need of His mercy. And we are acknowledging that guilt and shame and fear plague us and we need Him to give us peace. And He is always faithful to give it on account of what Jesus has done for us. It's because we're called, we're loved and kept. Past, present, future, secure. But as we land the plane, as we conclude here, our day-to-day -day reality is this. I know this is true for the vast majority of you because you've told me this. I know this is true for me. I'm going to go ahead and assume it's true for all of us. We struggle to know peace in our hearts. We struggle to know peace, to feel peace in our consciences. We are often haunted by suspicions about ourselves. We're haunted by doubts about God or how could he love me? How could he save me? Is Christ enough? So dear saint, what do you do in that moment? What do you do? Well, for many of us, in that moment of struggle, in that moment of wrestling, in that moment of doubt, we think, well, I surely, I've got to do something. I've got to feel something, so let me muster that up or produce that somehow. 
We think I need to do something to prove to myself and to prove to God that I'm legit. This has been what I'm about to read has been read in our assembly before, and I trust the Lord will bless it with us again today. Horatius Bonner was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century who wrote a wonderful little book called God's Way of Peace. And in it, he writes this account. I knew an awakened soul who in the bitterness of his spirit thus set himself to work and pray in order to get peace. He doubled the amount of his devotions, saying to himself, surely God will give me peace. But the peace did not come. He set up family worship, saying, surely God will give me peace. But the peace came not. At last, he bethought himself of having a prayer meeting in his house as a certain remedy. He fixed the night, called his neighbors, and prepared himself for conducting the meeting by writing a prayer and learning it by heart. As he finished the operation of learning it, preparatory to the meeting, he threw it down on the table saying, surely that will do. God will give me peace now. In that moment, a still small voice seemed to speak in his ear saying, no, that will not do, but Christ will do. Straightway the scales fell from his eyes and the burden from his shoulders. Peace poured in like a river. Christ will do, was his watchword for life. Saints, it's like we sing. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do could give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears could bear my awful load. Beloved, none of that will do. But Christ will. Christ will do. Let's go to him in prayer now.